Hi, this is Jimmy Bucciolato with the Original Gangsters podcast. I'm in studio, and my co-conspirator, Scott Bernstein, is not here in the studio with us, but uh, he is an investigative reporter extraordinaire. He is in the field breaking his next big story, and he's kind enough to call in. So we're going to have a little bit different approach today. But, uh, Bernie, you out there? Yeah, I'm out here uh, from an undisclosed location. I am planting seeds that will hopefully soon bloom into a great, you know, a great stories that I'm known for. Yeah, you're the man, intrepid journalist out there. Yeah, in all sincerity, we're just, uh, you know, some logistics uh, made it so uh, we had to kind of have me call in, and uh, I'm excited about the topic today, so let's... uh, Let's talk about O.J. Simpson and the mafia. Yeah, so you you uh, broke a story um, not long ago on Gangster Report. By the way, people check out Gangster Report. I'm, you're probably familiar with it, but that's Scott's online magazine. And it's the the big tuna theory was O.J. murder case actually a mafia hit. And and I think this is a really interesting story. And um, let's start with the actual the crime. Let's also just start by giving people context. Yes. That while... For a good 30 years, 35 years, O.J. Simpson had this veneer of being this very um, benign, jovial, uh, perfectly crafted pitch man for corporate America while also being you know, one of the greatest professional football players uh, the league had ever seen. I mean, he took the NFL by storm in the 70s when he came out of USC. Um, but almost from day one in his NFL career, he was haunted or, or shadowed, if you will, by rumors of mafia connections. And and these connections follow him to this day. And I, I don't, I should say, I am pretty confident in the uh, assertion that this isn't public knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I was just talking to... That should be our starting point. Yeah, I mean, I was just talking to uh, one of the staff people here in the, in the studios and talking about when I was uh, a teenager in college and the, this story broke about the murder of, of his ex-wife and her friend. I was naive. I, I didn't know any of those things that Scott just talked about. I thought, oh, this is OJ. He was a great football player. He's a broadcaster on NBC. There's no way OJ, America's sweetheart, uh, had, would have anything to do with a double homicide. So I, I was one of those people that was naive and had no idea that that OJ had this, not only in terms of like like abusing his his wife, but like these other sketchy um, elements of his life, criminal associates, maybe ties to the mob. So to Scott's point, I mean, I think OJ did a pretty good job of like selling this wholesome image of like the all-American good guy, athlete slash actor. And in, and in fact, you know, when you do a deep dive into his files in the offices of the DEA, FBI, L.A. Police Department, Buffalo Police Department, you find that he was or and, and let's not forget uh, South Florida, where he also came under investigation. Uh, he was, the, if not the subject, he was a target in one way or another in close to a half a dozen different criminal probes by different criminal organizations, sorry, criminal probes by different law enforcement organizations. So what about, let's start with the, in the beginning, like him, him growing up in, in Oakland, did he have a reputation as like a street guy there? Like, I mean, not, not an organized criminal, but was he running with gangs or anything like that? No, I don't think he did at all. Okay. So this might have started in, in, in Buffalo, then not, not like at USC or anything like that. I don't know. I mean, he was in L.A. in the late 60s, and he was a celebrity. And if you know anything about O.J. Simpson, you, you know that he, he's like a moth to, to a flame when it comes to uh, cameras and and attention and, and media, glitz and glamour. I mean, even today. Uh, just check out his social media posts. Um, so I wouldn't be shocked if he, he rubbed some elbows back in college. But 
I think the first time he popped up on the FBI's radar, the, you know, the early, um, at that time was the early, the early days of the DEA, um, Buffalo police department. Um, I mean, I should say the first time he popped up on the, on the radar of law, law enforcement was when, when he was selected by the Buffalo bills, uh, became a all pro NFL running back, uh, Broke a lot of records, ran for a lot of yards, ran for a lot of touchdowns, but also was running in a really fast crowd um, in the early to mid-70s in Buffalo. And that crowd was without question, people in that crowd without question were connected to organized crime and the Magadino crime family. Um, So, you know, he, not only was he the, either the subject or um, was, was a, uh, if you were going to be liberal, would say an ancillary figure or, you know, any form of target, whether he was the number one target or the number 20 target uh, in a, in a conspiracy investigation. Um, it's, it's, it's undisputed that, you know, he, he came really close a couple times to major embarrassment. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, is the fact that the, the feds raided his house in 2001, uh, looking into an ecstasy ring, um, or looking into his, his possible involvement in an ecstasy ring. And, uh, they didn't find anything, but again, when the feds are raiding your house with a search warrant, um, you're, <laughs> you're, you're, dancing with the devil, if you will, or, or you're, you're, you're uh, definitely playing with fire. And then back in the seventies, there was a, uh, pretty infamous raid of a, uh, after hours party in Buffalo, uh, where Buffalo police and the New York state police, um, raided this party where there was a lot of celebrities and, and gangsters and athletes. And, OJ and one of his best friends who was a, a, a very um, high profile figure, uh, someone that the, the feds insisted was a, a, a mafia backed drug dealer, but they were never able to co- convict him of being that uh, Mike Militello uh, Militello and OJ left the party like two minutes or three minutes before uh, the police hit the door. Was that a coincidence, or they, were they tipped off, or we don't know? You know, this was the, yeah. That those are other questions about okay. you know whether or not they were getting you know insider tips or or whatnot. But uh, and then back in the nineties, when before the incident that we're about to go into, which was the murders of his ex-wife or soon-to-be ex-wife. And a young uh, waiter friend of hers that just happened to probably be in the wrong place at the wrong time, um, Ron Goldman, that LAPD and the FBI in L.A. were investigating him for bookmaking and brokering drug deals uh, and and some um, capacity uh, loan sharking. Um, and the, the person they were investigating him, uh, the person they were investigating alongside OJ was Bob Kardashian. <laughs> and again, this is all, this is not all, you know, this isn't speculation. This was all, this is well documented. Now, none of, in none of these cases, did charges ever, uh, surface was OJ ever, um, called to account for his alleged behavior. Um, but he was definitely investigated quite thoroughly um, and 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 quite consistently over the years before and after uh, the Nicole Brown Simpson Ron Goldman flames. Let me ask you something. Uh, going back to the beginning here, the seventies, just for some context here, um, I wonder if this was a delicate political situation because O.J. Simpson is. Um, Prince of the city in Buffalo, popular athlete. And if, if federal law enforcement stumbles upon this, you know, reality that he, that he hobnobs with gangsters, 
I wonder what if there was any kind of like political pressure or something to like look the other way. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like um, that could be that could ruffle a lot of feathers in the, in powerful you know Buffalo society if that makes sense. That goes to what you just referenced the the possibility of two minutes ago. Yeah. Was it a coincidence that Militello and Simpson left that party, you know, less than five minutes before there was this huge raid that made headlines, uh, at least around the whole state of New York, if not around the country, and ended up in the res- and, and resulted in the arrest of a um, semi-prominent gangland figure um, that eventually uh, was killed uh, in a gangland-style hit around the same time that Nicole Brown Simpson and Ryan Goldman were killed. Uh, Butch, uh, Cesar, uh, Butch, um, I'm blanking on how you say his last name, but, um, he was, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pull it up in a second, but, uh, he was a, a guy that actually got arrested in that raid. And I know that he told people, um, before he, uh, before he met his, his untimely demise that he believed that that whole situation was possibly a setup. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Let's be real here. Like if OJ is the Prince of the city football player and he's hobnobbing with gangsters, we also know he's hobnobbing with like wealthy, influential business people, politicians, right? We know star athletes. That's who they rub elbows with as well. And so they're, I mean, let's not be naive about it. I'm, I'm just speculating, of course, but um, it's it's not beyond the realm of possibility that um, powerful interest would have, um, you know, tried to persuade law enforcement to maybe uh, back off or, or lay off um, someone who's that popular and important to the franchise. The guy's name was Bush Casey, but his real name was Kazmir Sucharski. And uh, he owned uh, a number of clubs in Buffalo at that same time, along with Militello. And uh, OJ frequented a lot of those clubs. Um, uh, Casey's Nickelodeon was, was Butch Casey's. Uh, Mulligan's was like the hottest spot in, in Western New York in the 70s. It was like, you know, Studio 54 uh, in Buffalo. That was owned by Militello, who was a really intriguing character uh you know if it it kind of made for a hollywood script um he was a a vietnam vet who was a a a war hero really good looking guy really smart businessman um went in and 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 helped build what was the high-flying 1970s disco social scene in, in buffalo uh, Militello owned a bunch of clubs. Uh, the feds believed that he was supplying cocaine into that scene. Again, they were never able to, uh, I don't believe they ever charged him, but they definitely were never able to convict him. They thought OJ was, was brokering deals between Militello and uh, athletes uh, in Buffalo that were buying uh, either wholesale or semi-wholesale cocaine. They, you know, buy, or I should say, not, not wholesale, but buying in bulk where they, you know, they didn't have to uh, you know, buy eight balls every night. So Militello was definitely on the Fed's radar, and the fact that he was running around with Simpson um, kind of even up the ante even more. OJ was the uh, best man at Militello's wedding, um, and again, Militello owned clubs, you know, restaurants, and then he was kind of like the the heterosexual uh, version of of Steve Rubell, uh, who was the the kind of the ringmaster of Studio Fifty Four. In uh, in New York City, Mike Militello was kind of his counterpart in in western in Western New York and Buffalo. Uh, he was kind of the the one that was uh, his places wherever whatever places he owned were the were the places to be where the where the uh, the rich and famous went and hung out. Uh, any celebrities that were in Buffalo, whether athletes coming to play the Bills or entertainers coming to perform, they'd always end up at, at Militello's. Uh, restaurants and, and clubs and, and eventually at a lot of his after hours parties. So um, no tell is a, is a really interesting character. And uh, that was OJ's best friend when he was, when, when he was in Buffalo. So like I said, from very early on, OJ was, was in the crosshairs of, of, of law enforcement. 
And this Militello, was he... I'm sorry, I missed it. Did you say he, we don't know if he was a made guy or not, or we don't, or he wasn't a made guy? I don't believe they ever thought he was a made guy. Okay, I think they thought he was an associate. Okay, and an alleged uh, drug supply chain into La Cosa Nostra in the Magadino crime family. Yeah. Okay. So before we get to the murders, let's let's fast forward to um, the '90s when you say that OJ was also. Um, suspected of, of being involved in organized criminal activities because that to me is really intriguing because if you look at the investigations in the 2000s, someone who's an apologist for OJ w- might say, well, listen, federal law enforcement had a hard-on for him, so they're just going to manufacture stuff and any any excuse to go after him because they feel like he, he, he literally got away with murder and whatever. I, I mean, you, you could imagine someone saying that. But in the in the in the '90s, if they're investigating this, there's there's no axe to grind, right, by law enforcement at that point with with OJ. In fact, it seems like he he was on pretty good terms with law enforcement for the most part. So that's really intriguing to me that that they were investigating him. You know, no, there's there's I think there's a there's some nuance to that. Yeah, he was on good terms with the LAPD or certain parts of the LAPD. Yeah. It doesn't mean he was on good terms with the FBI. Sure. DEA. Yeah, that's a good. Yeah, that's a fair point. Right. So what what was um can you unpack that a little bit more that I mean that's that's really intriguing was that supposed to be something he was running on his own or connected to former NFL players or was that connected to the Italians too No I don't I don't believe well at least from my limited research on the subject I, I don't believe they thought that OJ was doing any or running any rackets on behalf of the LA mafia in the in the 80s and 90s but they did believe that he was booking bets for celebrity friends or brokering bets to bookmakers who then I guess you could say those bookmakers were probably connected to that. Right. Right. I guess, you know, you could say that there's the possibility that there was some uh, mafia adjacent activity. Yeah. Indirectly. Yeah. Uh, And that he was again, brokering narcotic deals to his celebrity friends. And that, plays into the theory that's coming out now about possible mob involvement in in the the Brown Simpson Goldman murders. Um, and then the the fact that the FBI believed, again, they never charged. So this is all parlor room cigar talk. <laughs> because the because there were no charges, but right. you know the the FBI believed that Robert Kardashian was partners with OJ in some bookmaking activity, uh, again brokering some of these drug deals and then uh, loaning out money. Wow, I mean it, it seems plausible in the sense that like wealthy people also buy drugs and place bets. <laughs> And take out, you know, loans that uh, that they can't get from uh, a bank. So if if they're interested in that, they're not going to, you know, some some uh, jabroni on the street, right? They're going to go to someone else who's wealthy and powerful who happens to have those kinds of connections. So I don't know if it's true, but I'm just saying the scenario seems plausible to me. Right. That Kardashian and OJ would have would have some like uh, um, associates who were uh, let's say uh, unscrupulous, and they were living a really fast lifestyle at that point. And I think there's been rumors that they were you know they were swinging, right? That they would be ex- exchanging partners. Now that's a little salacious, but <laughs> I think OJ's actually spoken about it on record uh, about how yeah. He, he had uh, some type of romance with uh, uh, Mama Kardashian, Chris. And by the way, just some shameless self-promotion here. In the early days of our podcast, we interviewed Dan Moldea, and we talked about specifically corruption in the NFL. And uh, we talked about his book, Interference. And um, if fans want to, uh, listeners want to dig into our archives and um, listen to that episode and Moldea, yeah, he he makes a pretty good case that some of these shenanigans are still going on with NFL players in terms of having connections to bookmakers and drug dealers and things like that. So um, my my overall point is not only to shamelessly self-promote our podcast, but also to point out that this is not 
a wild speculative theory that an NFL player or a retired NFL player would have connections to the underworld. Would, would you agree? Yes. I think people would be shocked. Um, and, and not necessarily even major organized crime. I think there are all levels of organized crime and criminality that are on the edges or even maybe further <laughs> infiltrated than the edges into uh, college football, pro football, college basketball, pro basketball. Um, I think if you realized who a lot of these people were socializing with off the court, it would give a lot of pause to people, especially when they would be looking at point spreads and how, how point spreads were uh, did or didn't come in on certain games. I just think if, if there was ever any way to quantify it or any metric, it, it's impossible to do this, but if you could somehow come up with a number of how many games on a weekly basis are in some way manipulated point spread wise, I just think that, people would be astounded. I think experts would be astounded. Yeah, I mean, when we had our episode with uh, Michael Francis, I mean, he broke that down for us. And uh, we know that that our episode, that, that got some some pub on local sports radio here. And some of the local sports personalities were like, remember, they were like flabbergasted. Like, no way, no way, yeah. that, that, can't, that can't be true. So I, I agree with you. I think some people are surprised and maybe even naive about um, these connections between athletes and uh, criminal figures, underworld people. And, 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 and to the gambling. extent that it may, and, and, right, that could affect the actual outcome of, it's one thing that just for OJ to be hanging out at a club with some, with some wise guy or something, but what, what you're talking about is actually, may, may actually impact the actual competition itself. Yeah, and at least in OJ's day, the entire American gambling economy up until maybe 15 years ago was controlled by the mafia. Right. So anybody at any level of professional or, or high level college sports that was gambling, they were gambling with the mob, whether they knew it or not. Yeah. No, I think I, 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 I completely agree. And now there are, like I said, there are, there are different levels now. I mean, you don't have to. I'm not saying that people would be astounded by the, the, the number of games, I think, that are some in some way, shape, or form, uh, those games have uh, point spread outcomes that are manipulated. I'm not saying that some Wizard of Oz mafia figure is in New York City, you know, behind the curtain puppeting all this. Right. You know, I'm saying I think there are little pockets here and there of people that are, are no name criminals, not people that are completely off the, the, the police radar that have access to athletes and access to knowledge, uh, insider information. Uh, and then in those little nooks and crannies, there's a lot of point spread manipulation, I believe. Yeah. I think especially, I mean, Michael Francis talked to us about like, especially, College athletes are are vulnerable, I should yeah. say, um, even you know far more so than than professional athletes. Not to say it doesn't go on there, but OJ, for you know, uh, no pun intended, was juiced in uh, to the NFL. He was a, a a broadcaster. He was Monday Night Football. Then he was um, on the NBC broadcast. Uh, I don't doubt that you know he was. He was using information he could glean from his sources oh, yeah, in sure. the NFL to help him handicap. And if he was bookmaking uh, to to friends and certain you know ex athletes or current athletes or, or actors and or singers or whatever, I'm sure that he was using his connections into the league to benefit. Him. Benefit him and his business, alleged business. Yeah, and this is more of a psychological profile. I don't, I don't know if this will interest our listeners, but 
OJ would strike me as the kind of dude that would be doing that. Not, not, not as a, like to generate a revenue stream, but just a guy that liked to be the center of attention and liked to be a high roller and a big shot. Right. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, I'm not even sure he was a gangster. I'm just saying he, he just strikes me as a dude that would like to be part of that atmosphere. Does that make sense? No, he's a, he's an adrenaline addict. Just right. Like so many professional athletes. Um, and he's someone that, I don't want to say thrives, but well, at least at the time thrived in the fast lane. Right. It it did him it, until it didn't. It did him really well. Yeah, that's what I mean. It made him richer than many pro athletes could ever dream of. Um, he, you know, he used to tell people, "I'm not, I'm not black or white. I'm OJ." <laughs> right. he, yeah. he was one of the, the first African American corporate pitchmen to really cross over and connect with just so many mass, you know, mass consumers. And, and, uh, he was, he had access to the highest levels in the entertainment industry, highest levels of professional sports. I mean, he was incredibly networked in, uh, and then he, until, until his downfall. And even now, if you if you pay attention to to him on social media or pay attention to the tabloids, he lives a fast life still. He's hanging out in strip clubs. <laughs> He's right. you know running around with with gamblers and porn stars and ex criminals or alleged current criminals. I mean, it's it's uh, he still wants to be the center of attention. He just can't be the center of attention in the same way he was in the seventies, eighties, and early nineties. And I think this is good context, especially especially for some of our younger listeners, because you know guys our age and older, we, we remember all this. But um, younger listeners may not remember that OJ was again like America's darling, a corporate pitchman, an actor in TV and film. Yeah. And so, to your point, that this this guy was tapped in, like Shaq or LeBron, right? That's a good right, good good comparison. He he was like a really popular dude. Peyton Manning, Peyton Manning. Right, in all aspects of the entertainment industry, not just professional sports. Um, so let's jump, let's jump to, the, to the 90s and let, let's, get it, let's, let's at least address the, the, you know, the, the crimes at hand and then we'll break down whether or not we think there was any organized crime angle to it. But, uh, but I don't even remember what year was that. Was that, was that 95? It was uh, early summer, 94. 94, okay. Uh, Jimmy and I were both, teenagers um you know at the time it was called the crime of the century it really transformed the way that trials are covered in the media um the way that you know the the 24-hour news cycle was kind of started with the OJ case yes 100 percent and to do a 30-second synopsis O.J. Simpson had a, a very rocky marriage to Nicole Brown Simpson, who was the mother of his uh, of a number of his children, and uh, the marriage was coming to an end in June '94, and uh, they had gone to some family meal together, and there had been some verbal spat uh, after one of their kids' uh, soccer games or something, and O.J. was supposed to uh, leave for Chicago that night. And uh, before he left, uh, Nicole Brown Simpson and a waiter from the dinner that night named uh, Ron Goldman uh, were found butchered to death uh, outside of, of, of Brown Simpson's residence. Um, and they were, they were both stabbed uh, 40, 50 times apiece. Um, and OJ went to Chicago and when he came back into town, uh, there was, you know, quickly the, the belief that he might have had something to do with it. Um, and I don't think he did anyone any favors with how he uh, was interacting with law enforcement and, and being kind of too much of an open book early on in the investigation. And then a week or two later, there was a, 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 a warrant issued for his arrest. He went on the run. It was nationally televised. They, like literally like every news station 
in America, local, national. Uh, that night, I forgot what night it was, June something, 1994, um, turned to this, what what was a slow speed chase. Uh, the Bronco. Of, of law enforcement. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was him uh, in, in a white Bronco and threatening to kill himself. And um, eventually they were able to calm him down and, and get him to turn himself in. They arrested him. He was charged. He went on trial. It was a three-ring circus of a trial. And at the end of the day, he was acquitted um, and walked free. But then a couple years later, he would be uh, found liable in civil court for the death of of Brown Simpson and Goldman. Um, And then about 10 years later, he was arrested for an armed robbery that he uh, committed uh, in Las Vegas, uh, where he went to go take back what he thought was sports memorabilia that had been taken from him, um, or he believed had been taken from him. Uh, he went and, and, uh, brought a gun and, and some, uh, some associates and they, they stormed into a, a Las Vegas casino suite and at gunpoint took back the, the memorabilia. So uh, that was, it was more than 30 seconds. It was about, you know, maybe two minutes and 30 seconds. Synopsis of the no, no, it's, I mean, that, that's good. I mean, and, and let's, let's go back to the double murder. And, and so we know that the, the, the prosecution believes that OJ acted alone, that he did it. And even if you, and let, let's, let's not hide the elephant in the room here. It's a racially charged case. OJ's defense played the race card very prominently. Johnny Cochran, um, Brilliant criminal defense attorney, uh, brilliant order in the courtroom, um, did what he really should have done if you're being paid to defend O.J. Simpson, which was divert attention from the crime. And on the heels of the Rodney King incident that had happened a couple of years earlier, which was a videotaped beatdown the LAPD gave to a, a, a citizen named Rodney King and got huge headlines in the early nineties. Uh, in the, in the, in that climate, Johnny Cochran did what he should have done, which is just, he turned the, he turned the OJ case and the guilty or not guilty verdict into a referendum on how the LAPD treats African-Americans. Right. So he, he flipped it so that it ended up being like the LAPD was on trial instead of, instead of OJ. Because it was clear by the evidence that he was guilty, but yeah. Cochran wanted to make sure that nobody was paying attention to the evidence. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, we're, we're going to try to, you know, as much as we can here, stick to the organized crime angle. But what I would say is, I teach a course on crime and media, and we talk about this case. And um, you know, I, if my if it comes up, I explain to my students. Yeah, I, I I absolutely think that he did it. Now, was the LAPD corrupt? A hundred percent. Were they racist? A hundred percent. Did they used to plant evidence? A hundred percent. Did did they maybe plant evidence in the OJ case? They yeah. might. They might have. Very possible. It's very possible. Very possible. So so like I don't deny any of that. I I still think he did it. But but my overall point is it's complicated. I don't I don't think you know once is well it's just the LA cops were corrupt and OJ didn't do it or or OJ just did it and Cochran you know is sort of a weasel to get him off. I think it's way more complicated than either one of those extreme uh, narratives. Just my just my thoughts. Well, I just don't. I think. Just like everything, nothing's black and white, and there's always touches of gray in everything. And uh, I think, to me, the, the the question of whether he did it or he didn't do it, or whether he did it or whether he was framed, they're not they're not mutually exclusive. Right. You know the answers to those questions. Like I I firmly believe he did it, and I also semi firmly believe that the LAPD doctored the investigation as much as they could to, to jam them up. And just like a lot of police and, and the highest levels of law enforcement, there's a lot of mental gymnastics that are done by these, you know, big time superstar cops um, where they convince themselves that it, you know, the ends justify the means and right? justify the means. Yeah, yeah. When students ask me, did do you think OJ did it, or or was he framed by the FBI? Or I'm sorry, I'm sorry. With apologies, to the FBI, LAPD. Um, my answer is always yes. 
<laughs> right. I think yeah, it's right. it's complicated. Um, but but so but there are some alternative theories, right? But when you look at like public opinion polls, certainly most Caucasians believe that OJ did it. But even my understanding is that contemporary uh, polling of African Americans, I, I I think it's around fifty fifty. It, it continues to go up even among African Americans who think that that OJ did it. But there are these alternative theories out there, and some of those were put out by OJ from the beginning and his defense teams. And isn't this really where we're where we're going with this? Is like some of the alternative theories that either OJ didn't do it at all, or OJ did it, but he wasn't alone, and he may have had some some criminal um, accomplices or at least people that knew about what happened. So um, I think that's the point of departure here. So this this specific theory that you wrote about is not that OJ didn't do it, right? That's not what's being claimed. Right. It's not, it's not that it was a Colombian drug hit squad, which was, remember that was one of the stories that OJ put out back in the nineties. Yeah. Remember? So, um, that, uh, Nicole owed money to Colombian drug dealers and they went and, uh, you know, she didn't have the money. And so they killed her and her friend. That's not what this is. This is something different. So walk us through this specific theory. Uh, so this was actually news that was broken by the Miami New Times. Um, and uh, they had it on the front page or front cover of their September magazine. Uh, full disclosure, the story had been sh- shot to me um, in the last year. And the way it was shot to me, I didn't feel comfortable uh, breaking that news or writing that story. But, uh, once it was broken, um, by that publication in, in Miami a couple weeks ago, I was more than, more than willing to jump on board and, and, and throw in my two cents and, and try to color up, uh, that theory as much as I, I could from, you know, from the, the space and, uh, perspective that I come from. So, theory that's being put forth now comes from uh, a screenplay uh, Hollywood movie script that was being circulated in a a certain entertainment industry circles over the last five years ish. Um, And the, the, script is called juiced and it tells the story of someone that is being identified as this New Jersey mob associate by the name of uh, Charles Ehrlich, who goes by the nickname Charlie Tuna and Ehrlich has been on the feds radar dating back to the eighties. He took a, big drug bust, um, did some time in prison, uh, came out and has kind of reinvented himself uh, as a, a South Beach personality. Uh, he, he helps manage and run uh, Dean's Gold uh, Strip Club on Biscayne Boulevard. And he's been doing that for a good you know, 30 years. Uh, he was a co-defendant of O.J. Simpson in the 2007 arrest uh, for the the stick-up in, in, in Las Vegas. And he, along with, so I shouldn't say he, he helped a, a screenwriter uh, write a story based on his life, which appears to implicate himself in being present at the Brown Simpson uh, Goldman double murder. And he posits uh, the theory that the whole reason OJ went over there in the first place wasn't in some type of jealous rage, um, but was because Nicole Brown Simpson owed a substantial cocaine debt to this New Jersey mob figure that Charlie Tuna was a collector for 
the mob figures named Joey Ippolito, um, who was a made member of the DeCalvicante crime family um, in New Jersey, uh, the real life Sopranos, if you will, and uh, started to make inroads in uh, LA uh, in the 80s. And the, the theory that put forth in the screenplay is that that was what brought OJ to to the house that night. And when either he started to have a conversation with Brown Simpson over the drug that uh, it erupted into him murdering her and then murdering Goldman, who had, again, was just kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, bringing um, a pair of glasses that uh, Brown Simpson's mother had left at, at the dinner that night, um, bringing them over there to return them and, and just happened to get caught in the, in the crosshairs. So let, let me, let's, let's back up. So let's, let's make sure that we can establish that these guys are who they say they were, uh, before we, you know, break down whether or not there's any truth to this. So Charlie Tuna, it seems like there's no question he was a connected guy, right? Like that's well established. That's not, he, that, this isn't a, this isn't bullshit by him saying, Oh, I, I used to be connected guy. Like that's well established. Am I correct? Yes, and his dad—he's a Jewish, uh, Jewish mob figure or alleged mob figure. Uh, his dad was part of the Meyer Lansky's group um, in in New York, uh, New Jersey, and, and Florida back in the fifties and sixties. And uh, Ehrlich was a—you know—he was a. A true blue mobster um, that got caught dealing cocaine at a pretty major level and had to go do some prison time. Um, it was running around with you know, the, the DiCalvicante crime family, uh, members of the Lucchese crime family, members of the Genovese crime family. So, yeah, he definitely had a, a pedigree. And so between his father and, and where he grew up, he was around the life um, as a Jewish wise guy, I, or I would say Jewish mobster. So, so that, that part seems legit, at least that this dude that OJ was running with was, was a guy who was connected to some heavyweights. What about Ippolito? He was for sure. A, what was he? A soldato soldier in the Decalvicante? Yeah, soldier in the Decalvicante crime family, uh, came from, you know, I think a multi-generational, uh, OC bloodline, um, expanded like a lot of younger uh, mob figures in the eighties that were, you know, jumping into the booming cocaine game. A lot of those guys uh, started to, you know, expand out of the East coast down South out West. Uh, Ippolito uh, was, was doing a lot of things in, in South beach and Miami when, when uh, that, that area started to really pop off. Uh, and then was also uh, had a lot of activity going on in, in L.A., even opened his own restaurant in Malibu. So uh, Ippolito would eventually get brought down in a big L.A. mob sting, uh, or a federal L.A. mob sting uh, called uh, Operation uh, Lisma, which stood for uh, Operation L.A. Sicilian Mafia. Yeah, I'd really, I'd really like to know more about that. I mean, I, I haven't been able to find anything like court documents or anything. Do you have anything on that, like in your that you can share with me? Yeah, because the case uh, dovetailed with a couple other things that I've written about. Um, first, the uh, first it dovetailed with Ronnie Lorenzo, who was his co-defendant in that case. Uh, Ronnie Lorenzo's best friends with Jimmy Khan, aka Sonny Corleone. Right. Um, Lorenzo uh, was has been bailed out and bonded out uh, a number of arrests, I believe, from from James Con. Uh, James Con, you know, vouched for him at parole hearings. And um, was he the Colombo guy? What, what what was his affiliation? Ronnie Lorenzo, I believe, was a Bonanno guy. Oh, Bonanno. Okay. Um, but James Con has a very close relationship with the Colombos. Yeah, uh, that's I, right. I believe though. that he. Considers himself a uh, 
I use the, the words of the quotes, but considers himself a disciple of uh, Andy Mush Russo. Oh, right. The Godfather. Right, okay. Yeah. Got, uh, there's a famous FBI surveillance photo of uh, uh, James Kahn and, and uh, Andy Mush uh, coming out of a, uh, either a funeral or a, a wedding. Yeah, and then and and they they were known to frequent like Little Italy, right? Like have like very conspicuous yeah. uh, dinners in in Little Italy, uh, as, as, as if I recall. And that bust was ignited by the undercover work of uh, this FBI agent that had actually gone to film school on the FBI's budget and was able to infiltrate certain mob crews in. LA by pretending that he was a, a film producer looking to, to make mob movies. And so these were East Coast guys operating in LA, not connected to the Dragna crime family. I don't know who was getting what piece of what. I'm thinking to myself at that time period, late 80s, early 90s, that LA Mafia was still enough of a functioning entity where they were seeing some piece of what was going on. Sure, that makes sense. But I don't know for sure. I don't know. So, but we know that East Coast guys were operating on the West Coast. That's totally established. This guy gets yeah. this guy takes a case. So so we know this guy is the real deal, real mafioso from the East Coast. He was operating in LA. Now, do we have any evidence that he was selling dope to Nicole, or is his relationship only through only through Charlie Tuna? Yeah, so we only know that through the allegations that were being made in that screenplay by Charlie Ehrlich. Let's also just state for the record that Ehrlich is disassociating himself in some capacity from that screenplay, saying that one of the reasons it never got off the ground was because the screenwriter that that he paid to, to write this and whose name is on it uh, took too many creative liberties with his connection to the Simpson case. So let's just state that right off the bat. And Ehrlich is, uh, is, is pretty adamant that he had nothing to do with the Simpson, uh, the Brown Simpson, Goldman uh, murders and wasn't present um, despite what the screenplay might lead you to believe. But isn't there an indirect, another indirect tie between Ippolito and OJ through yeah. AC? Yeah. You want to tell us about that? So although the only thing that uh, right now ties a drug debt between Brown Simpson and Ippolito is what Charlie Ehrlich is telling everyone. What isn't uh, only coming from Ehrlich, which we can see from the Operation uh, Lisma uh, documents and records from that case, is that a Al Cowling's uh, O.J. Simpson's childhood best friend, um, who was a, a, a blocker for him on the offensive line uh, in high school. Uh, in Oakland, in, in college, uh, at USC, and then in the pros at, with, with Buffalo. So really his, his closest uh, friend in terms of a player and someone that he grew up with, uh, AC was a, a driver and bodyguard for Joey Ippolito when Ippolito would come into LA. And the FBI and DEA have a number of surveillance photos and FBI, uh, DEA wiretaps um, that document this relationship. Um, and, and Collins himself, I believe, has been somewhat open about his friendship with Ippolito. And these documents from that particular investigation also connect, you know, at least a, a, in terms of a social, socializing aspect, connects uh, Ippolito to Simpson. And I would imagine if Ippolito was running with AC, I would imagine that Ippolito and OJ knew each other at the very least. Right. Well, what I'm saying is that that, that investigation uh, showed you that Ippolito was having meals 
with with OJ. Okay, so that okay, so hundred percent then. So how, what yeah. was Ippolito? I mean, how did he hook up with AC? Do we know? Was was this? We don't. I don't know that. I yeah, know. that's interesting. Maybe it was through some of those <laughs> some of those Buffalo wise guys. I don't know that AC and OJ were running with in the seventies. I don't know. Yeah. Um. So then, what happens to Ippolito? Because his story also takes a, an interesting turn. So Ippolito gets nailed in that case. Um, ended up kind of, I don't know if you, if he escaped or if he was allowed to walk free, um, in the, it was actually in the weeks before, uh, this, the Brown Simpson Goldman Slains, um, kind of disappeared. No one knew for sure what it was going on, whether or not he was cooperating uh, whether or not uh, he was being, well, whether or not he had cut a deal for himself to uh, testify later on or whether or not he was being let out to because he was wearing a wire. Uh, nobody knew for sure. Uh, eventually, it, it became public knowledge that he had flipped and cut, cut a deal with the government. Um, the mob tried to kill his brother uh, in the December of 97, around the, uh, around Christmas 97. Um, they, they tried to kill his brother as a deterrent. Um, and then eventually he, I think he died in witness protection. Yeah, it's interesting. The um, I think it was a guy, an associate from the DeCalvicante family who tried to kill the brother, Sam Ippolito, and uh, apparently, from uh, the story I'm reading, he, he he shot Ippolito twice in the face with a 38, and then ran him over with a car. And somehow the guy somehow the guy survived. So it's a pretty remarkable uh, story. So, um, but again, so there's no question that Ippolito was 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 a mafia guy. Yeah. So I mean, really, the only change in the narrative that well, I guess there's two two things that are being changed. One that he possibly had a uh, accomplice, OJ. And two, the reason he went over there. Um, one thing that lends credence to the accomplice theory is that in OJ's very controversial manuscript for a book that never was released called If I Did It, um, he names, quote unquote, Charlie as someone that he brought with him to do what he said he would have done if he had done it. <laughs> right. Yep. And and so I'm not a I'm not like an OJ sleuth. Like I, I wasn't like obsessed with the case like others. Have has anyone tried to deconstruct or like uncode like or decode like who Charlie is supposed to be? Is anyone else thrown out there that like like this was one of these wise guys that he was, that he was running with. Well, that, Charlie, him, it, Charlie himself by putting that screenplay out for sale. Okay. So he's kind of owning it. I mean, he's average. He's advertised. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I don't want to start, you know, getting into territory where, or Charlie himself can take umbrage with what, what, what we're saying. We're just trying to relay the situation at hand. Um, but, What's clear, whether or not Charlie signed off on certain specifics of that screenplay, because just to be clear, his name is not on the screenplay. It's his life story being told by someone else writing the screenplay. Um, and he, he now is trying to distance, distance himself, saying that he took a lot of uh, too much liberty with with facts and, and manipulated uh, did, did too much dramatic license and, and made me look like I'm an accomplice to murder. Right. And I could, we could understand why he would try to distance himself from that. Right. But I would say that, yeah, how, how that theory got legs was by, you could, you could say by his own volition, by circulating a script that, is called juiced 
based on, you know, on OJ's nickname and which talks about being with him the night that this all happened. Now, again, I haven't read the book. I'm not an expert on the OJ case. I mean, I, I studied from sort of an academic, like the, the spectacle of it, but not, not the actual like forensics of it. So in his book, if I did it, does OJ say that the person was a driver and that they knew that OJ was going to kill them or were they just a driver? And then OJ comes running out and is like, yeah, I just killed two fucking people. Let's get out of here. Do you know the, the, the details? Says, of I, I, gra- I grabbed Charlie and brought him with me. And then I, I blank, you know, I blank, I blacked out before, uh, there was any blood spilled. And then I, I, I came to, and there was all this blood and I, I gave the, uh, closed to Charlie and I told him get rid of it. Something, something along those lines. I didn't, yeah. obviously I didn't read the manuscript. I'm just based on uh, re- reportings of other people that have read it. So here, here's what I would say, cause we're, we're, we're getting short on time here. What I would say and see if you, if you think this, um, I don't think any wise guy, a Jewish wise guy, Italian wise guy, regardless in their right mind would get in a car with OJ if OJ said, you know what, I'm going to go chop my wife's head off and her, and her friend, and I want you to be the driver and help me get rid of the evidence. I don't think a, any wise guy in their right mind is going for him for that ride. What do you, what do you say to that? Right. Yes, I agree. <laughs> That just doesn't that doesn't add up to me now. And then if you could say, well, maybe they didn't know and they were just driving with him. Well, yeah, but if he shows up to the house and he has a ski mask on and and black gloves and a huge fucking knife, <laughs> I suspect a wise guy would be like, okay, something weird is about to happen here. I don't like this. So I'm not I'm not buying that aspect of the story. What do you um, say? I, I don't know there, there, what's fact and what's fiction and, and so much of the OJ mythology just, I don't, I, I don't know. I, 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 I doubt that there's a ton of truth to it, but I do know that there is some truth to some of the things that is some of the things that are part of that theory. Like I, I personally have no, no doubt that Nicole Brown system, Nicole Brown Simpson and her friend, Day Resnick, uh, had accrued cocaine debts. I, 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 yeah, I agree with you. I'm talking to people, uh, that were around that social scene and people that, that, ha- that are OJ, case sleuths um both oj and nicole brown were more than just social cocaine users yeah but even even so and i I agree that that seems very likely uh, i would still say that there's i just don't think they go after her first i think they know they know he's the source of of the of income they somehow go to him, you know what I mean? Like just, just to show up and, and slice her head off. I just don't. Yeah. I think again, I, I want to just clarify. I, I want to clarify and, and just make sure that people understand. I, I don't believe that Charlie Ehrlich is saying that he did anything. Yes. Right. 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 Uh, I think Charlie Ehrlich is saying that the reason that OJ went over that night and the reason I went with him you're going to believe that screenplay uh, was to collect a drug debt for Joey Apolito. And that reason led to what happened. I don't think they're saying that like Apolito put a hit out on the whole Right. 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 That's not not what's being said. Yeah. That makes sense to clarify that. So who knows? Maybe again, maybe there's a mix of truth and lies here. I mean, maybe who I'm just throwing this out there. Maybe OJ told people that that's what he was going over there for when in fact OJ was it was premeditated murder <laughs> like OJ knew that that's what he was going over there for but if it if it came up to someone else maybe he he came up with a story like oh I have to because she was affiliated with the with these drug dealers and had a drug debt maybe that was a cover story he used because you know he's probably not going to tell anyone I'm about to go over there and, and kill her and if someone else shows up and gets in my way I'll kill them too so there may be a little bit of truth to it, but um, I still think that he did it 
was premeditated. And I'm not sure if anyone was along with him for the ride in any capacity at all. Uh, There's just not enough evidence, I don't think. And I don't think if you really were there, you would write a screenplay about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, good point. There's a possibility that you weren't and you want to sell a screenplay, so you interject yourself in it (laughs) in the same way that Frank Sheeran interjects himself into the, interjects himself into the Hoffman mythology. Right. That's a good parallel. Yeah. And I think uh, that's probably the the most astute comment of the night. (laughs) It's right. Like, especially if you know, you did, if you know, you didn't do it and there's no way they can pin it on you. Yeah. Why throw yourself in there? Brag about it. Right. No, I'm saying, no, no, then you can't brag about it because you know, Oh yeah. You're only doing it for, for street crap. Yes. Yes, there's no course. way they can actually nail you on. Yes, because there's no right. There's no um, nothing to it. So, um, well, anyhow, it's a fascinating story, and it's interesting that that O.J. Simpson is still you know a hot topic, and even to the extent that the original Gangsters podcast, even we found an excuse to break down the O.J. Right. Simpson case. If we found if there was an organized crime angle. Bernie was going to was going to find it and, and bring it to our attention so we appreciate that it's a fascinating it's a really fun story i mean tragic i don't i don't want people to think i think a double homicide is fun that, that's not but but let's be honest like oj the whole oj phenomenon has gone beyond the double homicide like it it's just it's it's its own thing you know what i mean it's an it's an indelible part of the yes. culture of the late 20th century when james and i were were coming up as young pups uh, I know it's something that I mark time from. I mean, I remember where I was the night that the chase uh, occurred. I remember coming back from a, a basketball game that I had played in the summer league and going to a friend's house to watch the NBA finals between Patrick Ewing and Hakeem Olajuwon. And the next thing you know, we're watching OJ Simpson, uh, you know, on national television, uh, telling the LAPD that he's going to blow his head off in the middle of uh, the freeway uh, with, with, cameras from around the globe watching i mean it's it was surreal yeah and there was no, and you know it seems like today everything's a spectacle with social media and whatnot but back then i try to explain to my students like you, if you weren't there it's impossible for you to understand what that environment was like that media environment because we had never witnessed anything like that and any any spectacle to that media spectacle to that scale i don't think you so just imagine before social media Every single person in America, I mean, I just, it, it's, a, it's an exaggeration, but like, practically the whole country was all watching the same thing. And it wasn't the Super Bowl and it wasn't the Oscar. No, listen, how about this? I, when I was, you know, at a university, when the, when the uh, verdict was read, the whole university shut down. And for you younger yeah, listeners, there, 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 was no, there was no smartphones, no laptops. It was people had radios and little fucking black and white TVs and the whole campus shut down because nope, they knew nobody was going to class. No one. <laughs> and so, like, can you imagine something like that? I mean, grabbing the uh, university's attention like that, a whole, shutting down a whole campus other than, like, some kind of civil strife or something like that? I can't imagine anything, like, grabbing the nation's attention like that. Yeah, it, it, was, it went viral before anything we ever knew the term viral. Good way to put it. Yeah, good good way to put it. So, and by the way, I also remember just since we're talking about it as a popular culture phenomenon, how how like comedy shifted. Like at first, like I remember Howard Stern was one of the first people to to find elements of the case funny, and like he took some slack at first, like well, it's a double homicide, you shouldn't be joking about it. But look, what they all jumped on it, right? Not long after that, Leno, Letterman, like yeah, not long after it was the- <laughs> every single monologue Saturday Night Live for two years. <laughs> Right. Had an OJ joke. Yeah, I mean SNL would parody. I mean it became it became like the butt of a joke. Norm McDonald, who just died, the R.I.P. Norm, um, he got fired from SNL for doing too many OJ jokes <laughs> because uh, Olmeyer, Don Olmeyer, who was running the network at that time, uh, was was really close friends with OJ. Yeah, so it, it's it, there's just so many threads to this story. It, it's the gift that keeps on giving, uh, so to speak. Whether you're a true true crime, you know, uh, geek or interested in it from the organized crime angle, or just just as like someone who studies popular culture, there's just so much 
there's so much uh, material to work with. Um, so anyhow, I would say uh, to everyone, thanks uh, for listening. Thanks, Bernie, for calling in. I know next week you'll be back in studio with us. And um, just want to make sure we give a shout out to our social media at Gangster Podcast. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, please follow us and spread the word. The, the audience is growing. We can see from the analytics that, that the audience is growing. We've got some things in the, in the works. It, I know it's taking some time, and we appreciate your patience, but we're working on some things, trying to get some video content and some other things going. So uh, keep your eyes and ears open. I got a big guest that I have not locked down yet. I'm not going to give the name away, but is, I want to say, 90% locked down. And this was a major, major OC figure Nice. Um, that has never really done a public interview before. So uh, hopefully it could be appearing on the OG podcast in the next week or two. Nice. Perfect keep, tease. Uh, <laughs> That's a yeah, good so, tease. Uh, keep yourself uh, up to date and uh, we'll, we'll tease it out a little bit more the, the the closer we get to, to locking this down, but I'm hoping to have this locked down the next couple of days. But uh, it's a guy I've talked to on the phone before. Uh, we've discussed maybe doing a book. Uh, never happened. I didn't have time. I had the time issues, but this guy definitely has a story to tell. Um, I'll just say that he was a high-ranking member of a, a, a one of the five families and uh, in the heyday. Wow. What a nice, uh, what a nice tease! And uh, and by the way, today I also met someone who was Whitey Bulger's neighbor in Santa Monica, and we're going to try to get this person on our podcast too. So uh, we got some 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 really interesting things coming up. So anyhow, uh, thanks for listening. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato and uh, Scott Bernstein signing off. Yeah, thanks for uh, dealing with my uh, my call in uh, situation. I appreciate you. I'll be back in the studio and. Thanks to Jimmy and Mark for uh, holding it down at Ground Zero for the OG podcast. Yep. Thanks. See you guys next week.